folks, Brooke is out of town. I think we told you that last week. She's she, on a much deserved break in Nueva York. Yes, and she just saw Hades Town Hades yesterday. Down. Yeah, she told us how much <laughs> she loved it. There's a show that's sort of about universal uh, grief. Yes, indeed. Yeah. You're probably wondering, well, those of you who don't know her, who this other voice is when I'm telling you point blank that Brooke isn't here. <laughs> We've talked about her a bunch, actually. I think your name comes up maybe once an episode. <laughs> Possibly. Sometimes I'm just a dear friend. Our dear friend, Heather. <laughs> yeah. This is Heather Parrish. I can use your last name, right? Absolutely. They call me HP. We call her HP. This is true. <laughs> and um, I know that I talked about her when I was talking about people who did the right thing when I was <laughs> grieving. And I still, I'm going to get teary-eyed thinking about it, but I just remember you leaving food in my fridge with your sweet little beautiful cursive handwritten note <laughs> and leaving um, food on my doorstep mm-hmm. and just texting me and not making me visit with really? anyone, which is, that's it's the there. thing. there. You deal with it. That's the thing that makes me cry. I'm like, that is the nicest gift to tell, to tell someone, I'm going to help you, but you don't even have to talk to me. I mean, if you're introverted and sensitive if in any way, shape, When or you form, haven't showered in five days. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And you're depressed and you're grieving. I mean, even if you're, you know, perfectly outgoing and not, you, just times. It's you just people time. just need to say no. Yeah. So thank you for that. And you're that, welcome. That's, um, you, so you've heard me mention her. You've, Brooke talks about her all the time. Um, but... The reason we're having her here is when our moms died very quickly within like Mm -hmm. three months of each other, following my mom's death (laughs) right on the heels of it by maybe like four months. Was it in the summer? Brooke's mom in November, yours in February February, and mine in July of all the same year. So right away. And the interesting thing about that is Heather's mom actually was sick first. Yes. Then my mom. Then Brooke's mom, and then they died in the opposite order. Reverse order. So take that, folks. Just know there's no predicting it. There's no knowing. One of the reasons I thought Heather would be the perfect person to have on the show today in place of Brooke is that we're going to talk about, and here I'm going to start <laughs> laughing already. I was going to say we were going to talk about caretaking. Heather says I care- it's caregiving. <laughs> it's caregiving. Well, I mean, it's both. Both makes sense. But you know what? This is growth because so Heather, when we when we talked about what we should discuss for this episode, Heather mentioned, you know, we should talk about how interesting it is that you've always said caretaking and I use caregiving. Mm-hmm. And I think that's we noticed that years ago and I never noticed a difference. And I and I would say, oh, it's because I'm from the South Valley, but we're both no, from no. the South Valley. So yep. that doesn't <laughs> excuse it. Well, anyways, when you brought it up, I looked it up and the very first thing that came up is from this website called Expressive Counseling. And the first paragraph that's like right on Google, right there Mm -hmm. when you look, it says, in a nutshell, caretaking is a hallmark of codependency and is rooted in insecurity and a need to be in control. Caregiving is an expression of kindness and love. Which I laughed so hard. I was like, yeah, I am rooted in insecurity, and I do have a need to be in control. So maybe I've been using the right word all along. Yeah, anyway. we've just used the right one for us. <laughs> so if that's true, I mean, I, I do think they're probably interchangeable on a literal level. But yeah, I mean, you know, there's 
I mean, I always felt I was giving care, so I was a caregiver. I like that. To me, though, like, I, I think I've read too many um, English garden stories growing <laughs> up. Mm-hmm. So caretakers are Hagrid on the grounds of Hogwarts. He's the caretaker. Oh, he's taking care he's of the He's taking land. care of the grounds. He's taking care of the land. So that's always what that word has been in my So when you started saying it, I was like, what? Wait, what? That's interesting. <laughs> I've never put the two things together. Yeah. But. So from for the purpose of this, we will try to say caregiving okay. because I because now that I know I like that better, right? And then I do think the idea of giving care it makes more sense than take because you're not because I'm certainly not taking care from. Right. I mean, I'm getting something in return, but it makes sense caretaking because you are taking care of somebody. Yeah. I mean, in the in the colloquial that, yeah. that we say, but in terms of the actual sort of metaphysical act. It's it's a giving. What it is, yeah. It's a pouring out of a thing. It can dry you up, and when you are dried up and you have to keep going, that's when it becomes like it's taking everything it's, from me. It's taking my energy. Well, why don't before we even begin, let's give us give us a little rundown of your mom because I think okay. part of the show is to be able to talk about the people that we've yeah, lost and, and loved, and especially and in terms of grieving, the caregiving in my experience really folded into. The grieving eventually. My mother got sick catastrophically very quickly when I was about 30 and I took care of her for nine years full-time like not just like went to work and kind of no it was full-time. I lived with her. She was bedridden. It happened over five days for her so it was very fast. She had a, a neurological issue with her spine. She went from healthy to bedridden in, in five days. Wow. And it was her her spinal column was basically shredding itself and they didn't expect her to live past a year so I was like, okay, I'll put my thing on hold. Right? <laughs> I can gonna, do a year. Yeah, a year's fine. I was going to move to L.A. anyway, whatever. And then that turned into nine years. And it changed my life a lot. Oh, yeah. And it allowed me to be an artist for that time and focus on that. But at the same time, I was also pouring out a lot of energy into my mom. And after nine years, we had... A separation where she was able to sort of move her care into the hands of other people. And I moved on with my life to a certain extent, but it was another five years before she died. Yeah. So we're talking 14 years. And during that time when you adjusted from being her primary caretaker to just one of a group of a mm-hmm. village or whatever, even though I'm sure it was a welcome adjustment because you're going from your whole life being lived for someone else almost. Was it hard to adjust oh, yeah. out of that? I was depressed for 10 months. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, those of us who work in the arts tend to be tend towards depression. But for me, it was a significant depression. And I actually think that starting caregiving was the first sense of grief for me because there's an identity shift. Mm-hmm. And you don't realize it. You think you are who you are. But when you go from one role to another in a relationship with somebody else, there's a huge identity shift. And in my case, and most people, when you're the child who's right. giving care, you become the parent figure. Right. And the parent figure becomes the child figure in, a, in certain ways. And that identity shift really causes a grieving cr- process already. I did that at 30, 31. And interestingly, mm-hmm. that's the year I, uh, Brooke and I started doing theater together. Oh. <laughs> it all comes <laughs> cycles. We talked yeah. about cycles a couple yeah. times. And ago. then so that identity shift happened again when I moved out of grieving and then it happened again when my mom died. So 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 lots of yeah, it's like new levels of grief yeah. constantly. I sure know about that. Uh, so there's a million questions I feel like we could discuss mm. around 
caregiving. And, and like you said, I, I agree with you 100%. I think it shifts who you are. What do you think caregiving taught you? Patience was the oh, yeah. biggest, <laughs> you know, and you don't realize it. I mean, it's it's a trial by fire because, you know, you, you're losing your patience in order to gain your patience. That's right. that's the irony of it. Um, and that losing your patience is part is just yes, so normal. It's like so those it's, of you who are. Yeah, it's like breaking trouble. down the muscle in order to build it up. Right. Um, that's, that's a great metaphor. That's exactly what it is. And so I'm way more patient now. I think it helped me as an artist because I started seeing more what was important in in my life, in my view, more than just my ego. Because you know, when my mother's, I watched her identity just completely change overnight. And it became less about who she was to the outside world and versus who she was in the face of this pain. Do you feel like she changed or do you feel like you saw more of elements of her personality that were always there kind of Under the surface. Grow? Yeah. It's like when they talk about people in dementia, you know, you, their brain starts to shrink a bit. And I mean, I don't know that's technically the term. Not a medical Works doctor. For me. uh, we're not <laughs> professionals. We always say that. But <laughs> it starts to strip away the, the sort of societal aspects of their personality. So you start to see um, more about what their regular responses are. Um, it becomes about survival. So you see who they are in the essentials. And for my mother, it was overwhelming for me because she was always a very selfless person and she was a great mom, but she still managed to exist in a sense of grace mm -hmm. with her pain. And I didn't understand that for years. And yeah. so that was one of the big insights that I think came after, after I left. Yeah, I feel, I feel like the way I looked at it while I was in the situation till not even right when she died, maybe a year out. I remember she was always so stubborn. And I would get frustrated with her. And then it took her dying and me getting through a year of grief before I ever stopped to consider she was losing <laughs> not only her cognitive like memory and ability, but her body and, mm -hmm. and her job and her license and mm -hmm. her friend and everything and facing a terminal diagnosis and deciding to stop chemo that wasn't mm. working and do all that and get up in the morning and face every day and do what she wants and decided to do it on her terms and go to the ocean when she wanted and mm -hmm. eat ice cream when she wanted and I never fucking gave her any credit for the fact that she just faced all of that fearlessly and that's when I when I get into like all my many regrets mm -hmm. um that's one of the big ones that that I was so wrapped up in the moment that yeah. I didn't see how well she was handling it because I was seeing her from a, a complicated daughter's relationship where I was thinking, oh, she's just so stubborn and she has to have everything her way. And yeah, because yeah, she knew she was dying and she knew she had a limited time. And so she was going to do she's things like, yeah, her way. No. Like how that's actually yes. pretty <laughs> admirable when you're not the person like dealing with the consequences of her not acknowledging she can't see and running into things and right. you know stuff like that so yeah my mom kept trying to get out of bed and she was you know she was paraplegic and the further she, along she got the more she was sure she could walk she, she was, just believed it she just believed she could walk and she was i'm gonna show you right now did you now. ever just let her oh yeah there was one there one time i was just like mm. and then she <laughs> nearly slid out she was like well, i guess i'm not ready for that right now but you know like she you was gotta sure. learn on your own she was sure let's talk about the slow burn the slow burn <laughs> process that happens with caregiving yeah, what I meant by that was that it's like people would go, oh, you, you must be so relieved she was sick for so long. And it's like, yeah, I, I was. And I was glad that she was finally out of it because she was in pain for so very long. But it's like they think that that should that eliminate. That somehow makes it easier. Yeah. 
or that you've somehow prepared that that yeah. somehow I think people think that you've had this time so you've you've, you've processed come it to you've it. gotten to it you're just fine with like it like you have any and the thing is any anticipation you feel for a loss you're nowhere near the ballpark yes. of what it's actually going to be like that's just so what a silly thing that is so common in conversation and in um, yeah. just like these deeply held false yeah. beliefs that we have. I also think it's the same for people whose like parent or loved one dies when they're in their 90s. And oh, oh, yeah. Well, they had a long life. They had a good long life. I mean, it's not like it was, I mean, you knew that they were going to die someday. Yeah. Like, well, but yeah. like I said, when you're a caregiver, your your first grief happens in becoming the caregiver because there is another life that is dependent upon your energy. And that life is deteriorating. It's not like raising a kid. I used to always It's not joke, like you see someone bloom and blossom. Yes. You're seeing them actually fold and deteriorate. Yes. You're walking them to death. Exactly. So, so there's no, you're not seeing like benefits of your work right. outside of knowing whether or not they're comfortable and not mm-hmm. in pain or. When I left taking care of my mom, I used to joke to people that, you know, if I had had a baby on the week that she got sick, I would have had a third grader when I had stopped and, and yeah. you know I didn't she got she got worse and worse it got harder and harder for her it's not the same thing so you, the slow burn is this also this this long goodbye that you you know that they're deteriorating and every single day you have to face that to a certain extent even if you try not to you're looking at it yeah and then when they do die everyone's like oh well that's done yeah <laughs> no well <laughs> Well, and the hard thing I think to put into words, and I've been trying, is that there is some relief. That is part of it. It's not enough to warrant people mm-hmm. having those opinions. Right. But it is there, and it's so bizarre to experience all those feelings at the same time, mm-hmm. those layers, like a weird hamburger. Yes. <laughs> like it's got this yeah. very strange ingredient of like relief lettuce and then you've got like <laughs> yeah. like regret well, tomato you know, and I don't know what a weird metaphor. It's jalapenos and ranch dressing together. It's yeah. it's heat and <laughs> cooling down. It's <laughs> Yeah. And you're allowed to, we don't talk about how complex feelings can be especially in grief. We don't talk about that. Yeah. People can feel relief and they can feel even a certain if they're of a religious bent, they can feel you know, a certain level of joy, but still want that person right. with them. They yeah. still want, why is the world broken? Or pride. I know that was a big, uh, you know, my family is Christian and that whole idea of them returning to their family mm-hmm. and, and that they, they served a good life and a good purpose here. And then they get to yes. go home. There's almost like a, a pride in the person yes. and a peace mm-hmm. when they're sick that, that you're, you're thankful, yeah. like a gratitude that they're not dealing with whatever. But see, then the very next thing that I always think at the same time is like, why did she have to go to through that in the big to begin with yeah <laughs> like why is that even here <laughs> why is there suffering in the world and you so you have all of that at the same time because yeah. we are large and we contain multitudes we, we are stardust <laughs> one thing that I notice about that that was different in my interpretation of like what cancer and what terminal illness was before I saw that up close was this idea of like something starting here and then just gradually getting Mm -hmm. worse and slow decline and how much I remember having a professor who was my favorite professor in college and he died of pancreatic cancer and he was talking about how death comes up so close to you where it's like right in front you can feel its breath on your face and then it pulls back and it comes up again and it pulls back and that it's this like 
weird highs and lows it's Mm -hmm. good days and bad days and and it's so complex like there were times where you're like oh she's she's gonna be dead tomorrow Mm -hmm. there's she's at the end and then you go no she's she's gonna be around for a while she she's Mm -hmm. fully making sense again she's walking around and then the next week back to it and there's I mean, the hospice people, bless them, at the end where they have those little blue books and so many people that I've seen die in long-term care have just gone by those books. Exactly. It's crazy. Mm-hmm. I remember the one part where it says, like, they'll get a sudden burst of energy. Mm-hmm. My gr- super clear all of a yeah, sudden. Yeah, super clear. That happened with my grandpa where he was just not even speaking for days and days and days. And then, like, one day just got up and wanted us to check his mailbox and mm-hmm. see if there were any cards for him. And then we read him a bunch of cards and he was totally fine. And I was like, did he heal himself? <laughs> And then we had a really good hospice worker who was like, this means, yeah, this means the opposite of what it feels like, yeah. which is so bonkers mm-hmm. that that happens even. Yeah. And that they know it happens. My mom's was super long. Her hospice care workers were like, she's doing all of the signs, all of the things. She's just doing them over nine months instead, instead of, of like nine days. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, well, that's she's been doing this for 14 years. Yeah. So you're yeah. like, that's sort of the way she rolls. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, she did a lot of that like. On Mother's Day before she died, she was incredibly clear and together and with it and had all of her memories and had all of her vocabulary and had everything. And that was the last day my brother saw her. So he's having a different experience of all of this. Yeah, I'm sure. Um, I mean, siblings do. Yeah. It was something I remember my brother calling me. He had just moved up to the Bay Area, and he was like, do I need to come down? I've just got a new job. Like, And we kept going back and forth. The hospice workers were constantly like, well, this could be, but maybe not. And he was like, how do I? How do and you I said, Matt, you that's know, a real thing. we've been doing this for, for 14 years now. You need to just live your life. And then yeah. when it happens, it'll happen. But make sure you're okay with where you're at. Go visit her. Spend time. Come down on the weekend. Do what you need to do. Be here when you can, basically. Yeah, but, you know, ultimately... You can't drop everything for six months when we don't know. Yeah, I think he wanted me to say that to him to give him permission oh, to do course, it because yeah. he has he deals with a lot more guilt than I do. But I I was the one taking care of her, so I don't feel a lot of guilt. Yeah, of course. <laughs> I mean, I took care of my mom, and I have all kinds of guilt, but I had it before she. Yeah, <laughs> that's like, part of your makeup. It's less me. part of mine. Yeah. One thing I was going to ask because I feel like I had a precise moment, but. You know, when someone has a terminal illness like that, you know from a long way out that they're going to die. But there's a different moment when you know mm-hmm. that it's imminent. When, How close to her death was that moment for that, you? That was actually only about 24 hours. Oh, that close. Yeah, because she had been in hospice for nine months, and she had had a couple of times where she was kind of, eh, they're like, well, maybe it could be very close, and then she'd you know rally a little bit and so yeah they called us down on the weekend and they were like this looks really bad and her kidneys were shutting down and it was clearly advancing and so I was like I'll I'll probably get a call tomorrow on Monday and it was at 5 a.m on Monday they called so yeah my mom she I got a call I, I had been sick. I had the like the flu, so I was staying away from her. And I got a call that they said they thought it was going to be pretty quick. And I came, and she was relatively coherent. And within, I don't remember exactly, but I feel like an hour of me being mm-hmm. there. Like, I feel like she just wanted me to see her coherent. Mm-hmm. And then I, I have that moment where I, it just feels like she chose to go. So there was that whole week she was in the coma where it was like, oh, this is there's no coming back from this. 
and I think one of the things that I really struggle with because because I, I feel like I sit in my grief a lot I feel like I'm proud of myself that I don't run away from it mm-hmm. that I feel it that I talk about it that I talk about her but th- when I go to that place in my head of that last week of I'm going to say this out loud and then you're going to give the answer that everybody gives that say, oh, no, you weren't. But in my heart, the idea that she was present for that week, even though she wasn't there, she she was laying in that bed. She wasn't super conscious, but I believe that she could hear us. I believe that she was around. And I hate the idea of thinking that she might have been trying to communicate something mm-hmm. and that I wasn't a good enough daughter to be able to to hear or feel or know what she was saying Mm -hmm. and I know that that is stuff like Brooke always says what does she call it borrowing grief or borrowing anxiety like making things up you're making it up so that you can get more out of it but but I I just that whole week I remember feeling like should we just stop the morphine and like see like and of course anytime you did she would start moaning and you could tell she was Mm -hmm. in a lot of pain so it's like you don't want to do that Mm -hmm. and then then I fear like, is there, was there this part of knowing she was in so much cognitive loss and and problems? And she had said a million times she was ready and fine with death. Was, was there a point that we all kind of collectively and subconsciously were like, well, if, you know, maybe it's better if we keep her just out of pain and don't let her come back from whatever this is, because it could be worse whenever we're dealing with and I don't think anybody had any like malintent I just it, it's it sticks in me and anytime I try to go there to think about that week I feel myself just like go no nope. <laughs> <laughs> so I, mm-hmm. yeah I don't know that it's necessarily borrowing grief I think that it's a carryover from a lot of worthiness issues that you have with your mom yeah from before yeah. from before and it just became super heightened yeah. during that week. And the other thing that I don't think that, in my experience, a lot of people talk about is we always talk about everybody dies alone. Everybody's got to go through that journey on their own. But the fact of the matter is, is that the people who are around them and close to them have their own little tiny death. Mm-hmm. And they're the ones who have to make decisions about it because they're the ones who have to live with their little tiny death. And you make the decisions that you make. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah, That helps. Okay. So one of the things that when I had, when we had discussed talking about caregiving, you said something that you often talk to folks about regarding grief is finding uplift Mm -hmm. in your grief. Yeah. What do you mean by that? Um, I, I think that I, I don't know. I don't know if you want to call it a style of grieving. (laughs) (laughs) My grief fashion (laughs) is boho chic. Yeah. I don't know. Uh, right. Well, it is kind of my own fashion, so I don't, maybe. Um, no, I I think I work really hard that when I'm feeling grief come on me to find something that makes me feel like I'm celebrating my mom rather than feeling like I'm, I've lost her. Mm. One of the first things that I did, and this is so silly, and well, I, no, I'm not going to judge it. I'm not going to judge it. Don't judge um, yourself. R- very soon after she died, I created a Pinterest board called Remembering Mama, which is, of course, a play on that play by Remember Mama, right? Is Everyone old, knows that. Old right. chestnut of a play. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but it, And I just started filling it up with things that I could do when I felt like I needed to put my mom back in my life in a real way, mm-hmm. in a way that it still exists, like 
you know, the movie Murphy's Romance was one of her favorites. She loved Sally Field. Mm -hmm. So Sally Field's movies still exist in this world. So my mom, in a way, still exists in this world. She loved geraniums. And so, you know, I, I now I have like a lot of geranium motif things going on in my life because that's sort of a way that I put mom in, in my world. But it doesn't make me look back. It doesn't make me look at the time that I spent caregiving with her and picking it apart or judging it too harshly because of all the things I didn't manage to do. It's like you're becoming, you're going to be Heather 2.0 anyway from the loss. So how to bring her along for that journey and not just in a way that's you curled up in bed crying. And I think when I do allow myself to look backward in my grief too long, it's not that I never do, but when I allow myself to do it too long, it becomes not, I'm not becoming Heather 2.0. I'm too busy throwing my mind back into the time when she was super sick and I had bronchitis and we were screaming at each other and I know that that moment exists it's still very clear in my mind I I don't need it to be dwelling on this this type of thing I want to be a forward-looking person because that's what she taught me to be she was like I raised my children to fly not to stay in the nest so I kind of find those little things so that I feel like I'm putting her in my life in a real way in an active way but that allows me to fly I love that. So do you feel like uh, those things that you talk about, you know, adding in your journey from from now on, are they things that you've always loved and appreciated as part of her? Or are you finding yourself enjoying things that you didn't before? Because we had talked in previous episodes, like about how Christmas now Mm -hmm. I tolerate much more. And, and, And as you were talking about the geraniums, I was thinking about how my mom loves tulips and I, I would put like if I had to rank all the flowers in the world, like tulips would be nowhere near right. like, my top 10. But she loved them. And now I love them. Mm-hmm. And it, there are things like that. Yeah, they're enhanced. I mean, these are all things that I, I sort of indulged my mom in, in participating in. Mm-hmm. You know, she wanted me to always watch the movies with her and things like that. But now I really sort of appreciate what she appreciated about them. Mm-hmm. When I posted about the pinto beans, they were my mom's pinto beans. Mm-hmm. And... Pinto beans are one of those things I hated when I was a kid. Yeah, I did not like them. (laughs) Like, no. Now, I grew to appreciate them when I got older. And then, of course, we depended upon them when we were po. Yeah, well, I was going to say, when you're you're paying for yourself, all of a sudden you're like, oh, I see why mom did this. (laughs) Yeah, no, a big pot of pinto beans will last you a week. Yeah. But... um, so now it is a thing where it's like, well, this is bringing mom into my life this weekend and and doing this in a way. Uh, There are other things that are harder. I never had your issues with, like, Christmas Mm -hmm. but the last two years it's hard for me to be in or near a church during Christmas time because church and particularly at Christmas time was a huge part of our life and so walking into a candlelit church right before like during Christmas tide is like yeah still yeah because it's been like three years right yeah it's been about two and a half years so you went to the Christmas Eve service with Brooke okay so here's the thing about that At the Joyful Noise Cabaret with the Fools Collaborative, lovely thing, beautiful, had a great time. That's my nonprofit, guys. Yes, that's Haley's (laughs) Haley's group. I said, guys, I'm trying not to use uh, (laughs) gendered verbiage. Well, you know, we're in California, so dude is gender neutral. Always. That will will withstand the test of transformation and evolution. Um, But no, I sat because I was alone. I went alone. And I sat and was listening to all these beautiful performers and was just bawling, I was weeping, just, bah, you know, it was ugly crying half the time. And 
it was when we went to the Christmas Eve service and I told Brooke that I was like, I don't know, maybe I shouldn't go, maybe I should go. But then she was like her ridiculously charming self singing Christmas carols at the top of her lungs. <laughs> and I was just like, this is... <laughs> like I'm suddenly in the mood. So yeah, and, and I was just like, okay, well this is fun. And I didn't, you know, didn't shed a tear, so... Because oh. eh. you had shed them all. Probably. Previously. <laughs> Probably. You also mentioned that you cry more openly now yeah. than you did before. Yeah. Do you think that you held a lot of those emotions yes. in during the, you're like, I oh, know yeah. I did. Oh yeah. 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 I was definitely, and that's one of the things about caregiving too, yeah. is because you got to keep your deal. nonsense together yeah. for everybody else. And everyone, they're too busy calling you a hero and they're too busy saying that you're, you know, amazing. But not helping. But not helping. <laughs> that's, like, yeah. I need a hero right now. Like, <laughs> like I don't want to be the hero. Yeah, I, not I want the hero. to take a so, nap. Yeah. You're too busy kind of keeping it together and you're locking it down and you know, you're eating your feelings and. Oh, eating the feelings. <laughs> <laughs> Ooh. Yeah. Yeah. I would say if I could give any advice as a non-health professional to anybody who is going through caregiving is as much as it feels counterintuitive, you have to take care of yourself mm-hmm. first. You have to, because I'll tell you what, not only does it make you just a, <laughs> an irritable person and, and not a good as a, of a caretaker, I think as you could be, mm-hmm. The healing from that, from the damage you do to yourself, if you don't yep. take care of yourself for the length of when you're caregiving, it I'm still healing from oh, that. Yeah. I mean, I'm I'm three years out from my mom's death, and I'm still healing yeah. my body and my spirit and my mind and everything. From I had that. stopped taking care of my mother for you know five years, and at that point, that was when I was diagnosed on the cusp of being type two diabetic, and it's because I had gained a hundred pounds. It, it's not good for you. And so I had actually started losing weight about six weeks before my mom died. And then in the two years after that was, you know, I, I lost a significant amount of weight. I have more to lose. My health is way better now. But literally it was taking the techniques that I learned while caregiving with my mother and being like, I get to apply this to myself you now. Too. You know, I have a gloriously supportive relationship and I'm very lucky that way. Her, she We're has stupid. a husband who is like, how would you describe him? I, a I curmudgeon? Mean, he, a curmudgeon. That's good. <laughs> I'm, I'm furrowing my brows to talk about yes. Jack. He's like a lovable curmudgeon. Yeah. But he loves Heather so blatantly openly when like with anything else, he would pretend he hated oh, yeah. it just to like get yeah, up He's a cynic about everything except yeah. us. Yeah, it's so cute. It's ridiculous. So yeah, I have a, a you know gloriously supportive relationship, and I I'd always kind of known I wasn't going to put a lot of effort into losing weight unless I had a health scare, mm-hmm. and unless I had a health reason to do so. It was also you know I was very okay with my body. I was okay with being in my body um, most of the time. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not going to say it was universal. I think that's true. Even Lizzo says that she has bad days. They have bad days. You just do. And so I'd always known that it was going to take a health scare. And then the health scare happened. So talking about you're a reserved person. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know how that feels on, for those of you listening who don't know us, to hear the difference between Brooke and Heather. But I definitely do not think of Brooke as a reserved person. But I, I think of Heather and myself, even though I, I, I'm, I wouldn't say I'm a complete introvert. Do you mm-hmm. think you're a complete introvert? I'm or? a thorough introvert. You're I've trained 100%. myself in certain situations to, to deal. appear. Ah, okay. Yeah. I think I, I'm a little mixed. So I see both sides. But you are re- reserved. 
but being a reserved person and and not having like outward shows of grief but still feeling Mm -hmm. the way that someone who might be more um verbal in their grief let's talk about that a little bit yeah this is a little harder thing for me to articulate because I'm a reserved person Mm -hmm. so it's one of the areas that I think with me creates a little bit of resentment sometimes and this is resentment completely created by myself Mm -hmm. by my own ridiculous thoughts that are just sentences running through my head and not facts we are allowed to have ridiculous (laughs) thoughts otherwise (laughs) but I'm aware that this is really just my own narrative yeah But it is based a little bit on how people respond to certain things is for years and still, I think, to this to this day. But for the first year, a year and a half after my mom died, people were like, oh, well, you really bounced. And well, you know, you don't. And I actually had somebody say, well, you're the type of person who doesn't feel things as deeply. Ooh, yeah. To tell an artist that is just like the meanest. Well, and I get this a lot from people because of the way that I am. And it's not even just about grief. It's about anything. You know, you're like. They're like, I don't really think of you as an artist because, and I'm like, great. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a wonderful administrator in the uh, rehearsal room. Great. Thank you so much. Boo. But yeah. Boo to those people. <laughs> I, I think that sometimes when people aren't as comfortable being demonstrative or even just talking openly about their feelings, the assumption is, is that from everybody else is that they don't have them mm-hmm. or that they don't feel them as deeply. And so they're just not as important to them. And so I learned and have been trying to take responsibility for expressing when I might be having a hard time. After that Fool's Collaborative thing, we were in the thing, and I was just like, yeah, this is a little hard for me. And, you know, I get my little pinched sort of, I'm trying to keep it together, and my face kind of goes slightly weirdly. I'm trying to be pleasant. Yeah, but, (laughs) yeah, the difference between, like, some people, I think, in our culture and me is I'm like, I love to hear that. I, you know, I want to know that yeah. that people are having a hard time. I think sometimes people mistake that I'm having an easier time with things because it doesn't always come out through tears mm-hmm. or through like these typical ways because yeah. I, I make an art piece out of it. And they're like, oh, you must be in a good place to be able to write a poem or something. And that's that's not true either. So, right. But what's weird about it is then our culture is also like hurry up and get better. So there's yes. like no way to win no matter there's no right way in our culture all of it everyone is just like ah we don't want to think about death yes I think yeah and that's what happens when you're a reserved person you do have and I've said this to Brooke a couple of times she always makes fun of me because she says it's your I'm really quite pleased you know (laughs) that's for me I'm super excited Woo! yeah I'm really quite pleased (laughs) and because you have that response people just sort of go okay well that's that's fine. That's not a, it's not enough for mm-hmm. them. And then they they just sort of set it aside. They don't have to deal with it. They don't have to think about it. And so I've tried really hard to say to people when oh well things are pretty rough right now. It's you know it's the anniversary of my mother's death or yeah. I've just been thinking it's Christmas time's harder. And I keep trying to take responsibility for communicating that even if it's not in a super histrionic way. Yeah, I think that's great. I think the more people do that, mm-hmm. the more normal it will be it will for everybody to verbally express and and to know and appreciate and give people that bubble, yeah. you know, 
we had talked last time, uh, Brooke and I, about she was saying how she misses the idea of having visual, like, uh, morning clothes yeah. established because yes. it creates a visual for people to, like, and I think she said, handle these bitches. With <laughs> right, exactly. But it's that same idea. It is. And I think it's because, you know, if you are reserved or you don't, you're not in a place to feel like you can open up that way. And some people just don't have the words, even if they want yeah. to say them. And I've told her before that a lot of times my reserve comes from worrying about feeling ridiculous or looking ridiculous. That's one of my fears in the world is I don't want to be ridiculous. That's because their girls are so emotional. Yeah. I mean, I won't be considered uh, competent or yeah. intelligent if right. I look ridiculous. So I tend to, you know, kind of lock it down. But it should just be the assumption is somebody, especially for at least the first year, at least the first year, they're in mourning. No it doesn't matter, matter what, if they're no matter laughing. How close, yeah. It doesn't matter if they're going to a party. They're in mourning. Yeah. I think even if they're making jokes about the dead yep. person, even if That's they hated it, you know, because even hate is a strong emotion when it you tie it to because hate is just the other side of the coin of love, yeah. you know, so I'm sorry that happens. My sister and I both to the... <laughs> I think both sides of our family sort of hate this about us, but we're we've both always been like hard on the sleeve type artists where we've always tied what we're feeling to our art and, mm -hmm. and art and just sort of share, probably share, overshare. Yeah. I think my sister overshares even more than I do because she <laughs> makes me a little uncomfortable sometimes, but I'm also like proud of her when she, I'm yeah, like, you're like, yeah, you go. I'm kind of like, not sure I it would have been my choice, but you go. I made you. Um, <laughs> but I think even though I feel like I've always been someone who will say how I'm feeling or what's going on, I feel like I'm able to do it in a much more healthy way mm -hmm. since I, I think my intent is is not only giving space to say how I'm feeling so that people know, but I'm very consciously trying to be part of making a world where mm -hmm. it is okay to talk like that. Yeah. So making sure in most situations, especially if I haven't had more than two drinks, <laughs> to say it in a concise way where I'm getting the point across, but I'm not making people too uncomfortable. Right. Yeah, I don't need to trap feel other like people into my grief. Right. But which is... The, one of the advantages of being reserved is it's very much just like, I just need to communicate this and then we can move on. Yeah. But sometimes I need to communicate it. Yeah. But sometimes it needs to just be said. Yeah. For sure. Were you ever working on a piece? Were you working on anything when your mom died? About her, you mean? No, I mean, it's just in general. So when my mom died, I was still at that old job I had that like mm -hmm. consumed my entire identity. And so I wasn't getting much art done because I was just working and taking That's care of right. her. And then immediately thereafter, when I decided to go back to school, I was thinking like, this is it. Like, this is the relationship of my life. This is the thing that I need to talk about to people. But I've always felt like the piece of art that I'm ever able to make someday around my relationship with her will be my masterpiece. Mm -hmm. But I keep meditating and waiting for it to come and it's just yeah. I don't know if it ever will maybe and you know and maybe I'm putting too much pressure on it but I know there's so much to be said there and it, it's just right. I, th I think it's 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 a place that I go to where the wound is still a lot more raw than I maybe like to acknowledge yeah. even even though I do sit with it a lot mm -hmm. do you do you overthink less now Oh, no. That, 
I'm very aware that I'm neurotic and overthink in a way more so than I used to be. But no, I'm yeah. just, I'm terrible at overthinking <laughs> everything. I need it. Yeah, that, that that's one of my I have a couple things that and then like also uh, I've been working on boundaries for the last mm-hmm. couple of years. And that that came out of the caregiving. It's like yeah. being like you cannot give yourself to everyone else and have any space left for yourself. That's you right. just you cannot. And what happens with it, I find as I was late today is I end up being a bad person to other people in my life who I don't want to be a bad person to because I've overcommitted myself in right. so many areas and I'm tired all the time and I'm yeah, working all the time. You can't necessarily put out good work either if you're that's true. If and overextended yeah. and basically everything you're putting out is not what it could be. Yeah. So those are my two things that I'm trying. Yeah. I mean, I have one million things I could work on, but <laughs> those are those are my two things that like for this year that I really wanna try to focus on. Getting back to caretaking before caregiving. We call caregiving. <laughs> <laughs> caregiving. Anybody out there who's caregiving, what what advice would you give them? Oh, yeah. as a non-professional. I was going to say what what did I What do you wish someone would have told you? Um, well, to cut myself a little bit more slack, to ask for help more. I think that's something that we we don't do mm-hmm. very well. We're not really trained on how to ask for help or look for resources. And I know looking for resources, I always feel sort of like, oh, I'm going to get on the internet and I'm going to call the county service office and, you know. But there really are a surprising yes. amount and a free or sliding scale resources Sometimes out there. it's a matter of asking a friend to do that legwork for you. Yeah, that's good advice. It can be small things. One of the things that my mom and I did do that I think carries with me is that every single day we found what we called a, a simple joy. A simple pleasure and we would sit together at night you know and just say well, what was your simple pleasure today and that kind of helps put things in perspective and it kind of keeps you towards a slightly more positive mindset yeah and then put as much structure into your day as you are capable of doing I think that's helpful having like a plan yeah because otherwise it can just eat you up yeah I wish that I had the patience and the like the mercy that you learn through it but 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 I think with me really solidified after she was already gone Mm -hmm. I wish that I had just taken a few seconds every now and then to go okay where is she in this and I think I would have been kinder not that I was like miserable and awful (laughs) the whole time but I think it it would have I think it would have made things easier on myself because I wouldn't have been fighting the whole time right how do you think your mom would feel about you now and what you've learned from her death and carried from your journey I especially now now I've gotten you know a new job and and everything my mom would feel like I was finally where I should be Uh, I think that she carried a lot of guilt because she had taken me out of my sort of career path and my life path at the time and had sort of interrupted a lot of that she really wanted me to have kids and that was just no like, mm-hmm. <laughs> I wasn't going to try and, you know, establish a relationship and have kids while I was taking care of her. So she would have been disappointed about that. But there's mm-hmm. nothing to be done about that. So mm-hmm. there we are. Deal with it, Mama. Yeah. Um, <laughs> sorry I disappointed you in one area. <laughs> I was lucky in that my mother was always very proud of me anyway. Mm. I had a very good relationship with my mom for the most part. Again, that's sort of one of those things where if you had a good relationship with everyone, everyone assumes that, you know, it's not difficult and it still is but no she would be very proud she would be surprised at how much I learned during that time I think in some ways she would be surprised that I 
you know, think of her every day because I think that she thought that I, that she would fade from my, my life. Yeah, I think my mom would be surprised by how much she's become like the thing. Yeah. My like core motivator in so many ways. Yeah. Um, she would also still probably, well, who knows? Who knows where she is now? She <laughs> might be like, oh, you were right. I was wrong. I don't know. <laughs> or maybe she'll be like, Haley, you really do got to be a Christian. But um, no, I think that like she would be proud of the steps I've made to take my life in a new direction and, 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 and to remember her and to honor her in my mm-hmm. way, which is not the way necessarily that her family would. Right. But the way I, I think she would be, I think she would be surprised. This is, I'm getting teary eyed. One of the other things that it sticks with me is I just, I, I like to believe she was there in that last week because I like to believe that she knew that I was holding her hand and laying mm-hmm. on her bed and singing silly songs to her for an entire week before she died and then I did love her. But even though I was there doing the work, we fought so much that I don't know that she knew that I liked her very much. And I would hope the time since that she mm-hmm. would be able to be like excited to know that I did. Yeah. Sometimes more than I knew I did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, before we close out today, is there anything else you want to add while you have your chance? I'm sure you'll probably be my go-to person every time Brooks. <laughs> no, I mean, I think that that pretty much covers it. Um, yeah. the next time we can talk about what it is to deal with being in the thick of something that you have to deal with right after they die. Oh gosh, all that stuff. Uh-huh. You know, the one thing that just popped in my head, did they tell you that you needed to get like 20 copies <laughs> of the death certificate? And then, like, make t- 10 copies of the, like, have 20 uh-huh. real ones and then 10 copies. The and then you is, use, like, three. I have yes. A, th- is that a thing? <laughs> That's a thing. Because they're always just, oh, you need a million of them. And, and then, then you're you like, they're $25 each. And you're like, what's going on? I have to spend now $500 of death certificates. And I, now I have a stack of them. And me too. Yeah. And I'm like, I should make some sort of art. I wonder if that's a thing. Maybe I should collect them from everybody and make some You can still piece. order more. <laughs> just like what am I going to do with these I can never throw them away and I have so many and then we we made more so I have some my sister has some I'm pretty sure my uncle has some yeah it was crazy that's what I remember the most and uh, but yes there's I could talk definitely for an hour on that too (laughs) okay we're going to leave for now but I am going to leave this episode with a perfect tie-in the poem that is going to be read at the end here is by my friend Lizzie Wan and it is about the time she spent with her father before he died and um, this is from her book the hospice bubble and other devastating affirmations that was published with Puna Press, P-U-N-A Press.com. It's also available now online at akpress.org. The name of the poem is Poem from Inside His Hands. I hope you all love it as much as I do. All right. Thanks, everyone. And thank you, Heather, for joining us today. Yay. We'll see you next time. Poem from Inside His Hands. When the man takes to his bed, he starts on his left side puts his left arm out so that I am facing up, my palm exposed. Sometimes I am slightly cupped, my other rests along his side. He likes to drift off with the blanket pulled all the way over his exposed ear, a habit that his first daughter recognizes as one she has herself. She seems both surprised and soothed as the truth of it washes over her. She fixes him just so, gets his acknowledgement that it's good, that he's comfortable. 
The other daughter, the second and last one, watches this exchange, honors its importance, but she remains in the room. He asks for music. She facilitates that, adjusting volume until again he acknowledges it's to his liking. Then, without fail, during these, the man's last days, she slides her right hand into me and squeezes. I squeeze back and tears come to her eyes. She sometimes stays a moment more, whispers to him, caresses my skin gently, maybe trying to make sure she doesn't forget the moment. Unsure how many more times she'll be able to slip her hand so easily into my openness and squeeze. Unsure how much longer it will be until I can no longer squeeze back.